You are listening to WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM. I'm Warren Odeschalet, and welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that examines contemporary issues based on the principles of the Baha'i Faith. If you want information on the Baha'i Faith specifically, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. A dear friend of the Baha'i community, Nathan Rutstein, passed away two hours after sunset on May 22, 2006. We will miss him dearly. In honor of our brother who has moved on to the next world, I am replaying an interview that I recorded with Nat on September 11, 2005. Nathan Rutstein was an author of some 20 books, taught at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst and at Springfield Technical Community College. And before that, he was the international news editor for NBC during the Huntley-Brinkley era. I started the interview by asking Nat where he grew up, and what was it like growing up there? I uh, was born and spent the first 15 years in the South Bronx, pretty tough neighborhood. Mm. Mm. Sort of a, a Jewish ghetto. Okay. There were about four synagogues, uh, three Ashkenazi, one Sephardic. And I remember my father telling me, I'll break your jaw if you ever step foot in a Sephardic synagogue. Mm-hmm. A lot of people aren't aware that uh, there's some animosity between those two major divisions of, of Judaism. Sephardic and which? Ashkenazi. Okay. And the Ashkenazis were really, many of them, converts to Judaism. They were from Central and Western Europe, Eastern Europe. Well, the Sephardics stem from the uh, seed of Abraham and Jacob, and they lived around the rim of the Mediterranean in North Africa the Middle East, Greece, Italy, Spain, Portugal, Turkey, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And they tend to be darker people with olive complexion and dark eyes, uh, whereas the uh, Ashkenazis are, tend to be lighter. Mm-hmm. You know. mm-hmm. And they speak, their, their lingua franca is Yiddish, okay. whereas, which is a sort of a, a fractured German and Slavic language. Mm-hmm. And the uh, lingua franca of the Sephardics is Ladino, which is a, a fractured form of Spanish. Okay. And when they write it, they use the Hebrew alphabet. Oh, wow. Mm. Okay. And so you grew up there through elementary school, junior high, junior high school? High, not high school. Mm-hmm. My father was a plumber, and he was doing fairly well, so he moved to Mount Vernon, New York, which mm-hmm. is in Westchester County, mm-hmm. a suburb of New York City. Mm-hmm. And I went to high school there. Okay. Yeah. And what was it like there versus being in the Bronx? Well, there were trees, and there was grass, <laughs> yeah. and we we really moved into America. How's that? In the, the the ghetto where I lived, Thanksgiving was cr- considered a Christian holiday. Ah, okay. And uh, we had no interaction with Christians whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And uh, frankly, we were very prejudiced mm-hmm. toward Christians right. because we knew we were considered Christ killers. Mm. 
and been persecuted for so many decades, generations, centuries. Mm -hmm. And so I had absolutely no interest in Christianity, and I viewed them as Christians as my enemies. Mm. So you had no Christian friends during high school? No. Well, <clears throat> uh, not, not even in Mount Vernon. I didn't mm -hmm. have any Christian friends. Mm. So you were in a predominantly Jewish environment in Mount Vernon? No, it was, it was mixed, but uh, uh, we, we sought out the Jews. Okay. Now, uh, you went to college after high school? Yes. First, I w went to University of Alabama. I was an athlete. Okay. What was your sport? Uh, baseball. Uh, I played basketball and football. Mm. But baseball was my major sport. My, I dreamt of being the center fielder for the New York Yankees. Oh, wow. But there was a fellow by the name of Joe DiMaggio who was around at that time, and I knew it was impossible to replace him. But, but uh, the experience at Alabama was uh, tragic. How's that? It was in 1948. At that time, racial segregation was in full swing. Mm-hmm. And uh, blacks had to move through the uh, move through the back door of a restaurant, mm -hmm. or even a, a house owned by a white person. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were put into a fraternity, and uh, we never saw the black people. They just prepared the food or made the beds and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And then at night, the chain gang would come out and clean the streets of Tuscaloosa. Wow. And most of the members of the chain gang were blacks. Mm -hmm. It was culture shock. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had a good friend by the name of Don Keats, who also was from the New York City area, actually Long Island. And he was a very good basketball player. And, and we started looking for other schools. Because of the situation? Yes. And we ended up, in of all places, a small liberal arts college, which calls itself a university, mm -hmm. DePaul University in Greencastle, Indiana. Okay. Which is, a, which is a, a Methodist school. How long were you in Alabama? Just one semester. Okay. And then the next semester I was at DePaul. Mm -hmm. And that was amazing how I ended up, I had never even heard of the university before. But they were interested in both Don Keats and myself. And we went there. And uh, it's there that I heard about the Baha'i Faith. So this uh, young man who had never been west of the Hudson River ends up in Indiana. Mm-hmm. I played baseball, little basketball, but in the second semester of my sophomore year, I discovered knowledge and became an, an education junkie and became interested in theater. How did it just so happen that you became interested in knowledge? I mean, how did that happen? I, I took some courses that I found extremely interesting. Oh, okay. And then um, I had a professor who noticed my writing ability. Mm and inspired me and encouraged me and I started writing mm -hmm. poetry and uh, also short stories mm -hmm. uh, which appeared in the university magazine mm -hmm. and then I, I have a, a way of, um, of doing foreign accents and, and mm -hmm. uh, mimicking and that sort of thing and di a leading director, theater director saw me doing this mm -hmm in the uh, lounge of the dormitory we were staying in. He asked me to, to take the lead in a, Car a Carlo Manati um, uh, opera, The Medium, mm -hmm. and played a, a uh, Toby, who was a deaf mute. Mm -hmm. you know? And there was a lot of 
pantomime. Uh, okay. And I, I guess I did very well because I did several other plays. You know. So. You did accents. Why don't you demonstrate for me what you what you mean by doing some accents? Well, like uh, Russian. Right. Now, does that mean anything? means I want to eat. Okay. I know a few little phrases that my grandmother on my mother's side taught me mm -hmm. survival phrases like ah. hushit means I want to eat, mm -hmm. spot, I want to sleep, okay. vadi, I want water. Okay, you know? so you just sort of like put them together? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me another example. In French, so if somebody was, who spoke French was listening to you... Would cringe. Now, when did you, like, discover this talent? <laughs> I, uh, even as a little kid, uh, I had an ear for, for mm. different languages. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I mean, for foreign languages. Recess? How about foreign languages? Well, I took Latin and Spanish. Oh, Latin. Mm. Oh, that must have been... Was that easy for you? I, I did it fairly well. Yeah. I had a strange teacher, Pop Phillips. Phillips. Hmm. If you didn't know your assignment, he would hit you with a water with a water gun, spray oh. you with a water gun. You know. <laughs> so did you ever get wet? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's go back to DePaul. So you actually were uh, an actor in college. An actor, and then uh, I won uh, an oratorical contest. Mm -hmm. At the university, and uh, so this is like giving a speech, or? yeah, an academic freedom, yeah. That was the subject, and, yeah. And mm -hmm. I had never given a talk, talk, a talk in my life, and I drew up this talk and, and presented it, and won the uh, semifinals and then the finals. And so, how far did how high how far did you go? National or regional? Regional. Wow, yeah. that's yeah. very good. So, and then you were playing sports at DePaul. Yeah, DePaul, yeah. DePaul, and you played baseball? Baseball, primarily. Okay, yeah. okay, and you did well there? Yeah, I did. Yeah. I did you enjoy but it? I, I enjoyed it, but I was losing interest. Uh-huh. There were so many other things in this world yeah. that needed to be explored. Right. And I was very curious. Yeah. Always have been curious. Mm -hmm. And um, that fire to... Uh, Play ball wasn't there anymore, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. I played anyway through my senior year, and I I was good enough to be uh, scouted uh, when I was in high school, mm -hmm. fifteen years old. George Sizzler, who was the chief Dodger Brooklyn Dodger scout, uh, was very interested in me, and I had a, I had uh, I was hitting balls over the fence, and, mm. and I was pretty fast and had a strong arm, and then I was invited to Ebbets Field to work out. That's where the Brooklyn Dodgers. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, then they abandoned Brooklyn and, and uh, Went to looked, LA. looked for the sunshine yeah. in L.A. Yeah. And, but George Sisler put me on a special team of Metropolitan New York high school and college baseball stars. So I was part of that team. Mm -hmm. But then I went off to college. And, but the most important thing I discovered in college was the Baha'i faith. So how did you run into that? I was active politically. Okay. And at the time, I was supporting Adlai Stevenson, who was running against General Eisenhower mm -hmm. in 1952. And our campus was predominantly Republican. Mm -hmm. 
So it was an uphill battle. And at the night of the election returns, I was in a student union listening to the radio and awfully dejected mm -hmm. because Eisenhower was clobbering Stevenson. Mm -hmm. And uh, I liked Stevenson because he, he, he was a one-worlder. Mm -hmm. you know? And that was sort of your outlook at that point? That's right. It just made sense to me to think that there's really one humanity and one world, mm -hmm. and there should be one country mm -hmm. governing this one humanity. And he was sort of of that stripe. Yes, yes he was. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was impressed with that. Mm -hmm. And so I was awfully sad. And uh, there were two young men. One was an African-American, about six foot four, thin as a rail, and uh, a short, skinny, white guy from Chicago, of Protestant background. They were both Baha'is, and they noticed that I was sad. And mm. They came up to me and uh, asked me what was wrong. And they allowed me to vent, and they just listened with their hearts, as well as their ears. And they didn't try to dissuade me in any way or give me advice. They just listened. Mm -hmm. And I never come across any human beings that would listen that way. And I was extremely impressed. And I sought them out on campus. Oh, okay. Uh, and my athletic friends thought I was crazy because these guys were nerdish. Mm -hmm. you know? And uh, I would ask them questions. And, and eventually they told me that they were Baha'is. And Baha'is don't proselytize. Mm -hmm. you know? They don't push their faith on people. Mm -hmm. And they wouldn't do that to me. Mm -hmm. And, but I was curious, and I asked all sorts of questions, and then there were some other Baha'is on that campus, mm -hmm. and they would get together at times and, and have gatherings, and, and I would go all the time, mm -hmm. you know, turn down other invitations to go there. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that the blacks and whites, and, and even though I, DePaul University was a Methodist university, they had a, a ruling that they wouldn't allow they would allow only four black males enter the school each year and no black females. What was the, what was the thing about the black females? I don't know. I, this this is, was a restriction that they mm -hmm. had. And what year but was a, this? And, and the blacks weren't allowed to join fraternities or mm -hmm. really mix uh, with the white folks. And uh, this was 1950, from 1949 to 1953. Okay. Mm -hmm. But the Baha'is, the blacks and whites, mixed. And mm -hmm. they really, and I, I sense that they really liked each other. Mm -hmm. And uh, they transcended skin color. Mm-hmm and saw each other as their brother and sister. Mm -hmm. And I was impressed with that. Mm -hmm. When I graduated, I went back to New York. I looked up the Baha'is in Mount Vernon. Then I was drafted in the Army. It was near the end of the Korean War. Mm -hmm. And while at Fort Dix taking basic training, uh, I'd come home on weekends. And Les said, let's go to this Baha'i fireside in Teaneck, New Jersey. I said, fine. So we went to Teaneck, New Jersey and knocked on the door. And this young lady that I had noticed in the New York City Baha'i Center, and we went to the fireside and... I think she was attracted to me because she, she volunteered to drive us to the bridge. And so I started dating her, and, and Carol, my wife today, uh, she at the time was with Fred Waring. She toured the country with him, and uh, when I was sent to Okinawa, I corresponded with her. Mm -hmm. And uh, I became a Baha'i in Okinawa, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah. Now, um, why there? Because I felt I should declare myself. 
Mm-hmm. I believed in all the principles. And I believed that Baha'u'llah was who he claimed to be, mm-hmm. the Christ for this day. Mm-hmm. So you, you, it sort of just sort of dawned on you at that time in Okinawa yes. that, that you had to make this decision. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And when I uh, came back to be discharged, I was in Fort Ord, California, and I was in the orderly room, and I knew Carol was on, that Fred Waring was going to be on GE Special, which was hosted by Ronald Reagan. That's this is on TV. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting, watching the TV, and Carol comes out with this fellow, and they're doing a love duet. And I stood up and I said, I'm going to marry that woman. <laughs> Everyone thought I was crazy, you know. <laughs> so shortly after I was discharged from the Army, uh, we were married. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, uh, so you we came got back? Married, yeah. We got married, and, and um, we headed out for Colorado, but never got there. Ran out of gas in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Okay. And uh, the first job I had was in a haberdashery store selling socks. Mm-hmm. And then uh, and I got a job uh, working for a radio station as a one-man news room. You know. So you produced and actually read out the yes, news. Yeah. Yes. And then I got a job with uh, an advertising agency and uh, writing ads and, and jingles and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then some jingle creator for radio stations came through and he developed a liking for me and invited me to come to Minneapolis where his central headquarters was located to write jingles. So were you a musician? I wasn't. <laughs> this is very strange. So we went up there and I only lasted a couple of weeks at this job. You know, It was, it was ridiculous. <laughs> I got a job at WCCO-TV, which was the leading television station, basic CBS affiliate, that produced people like Tom Pettit and Bob Schaefer and uh, Eric Severide and people of that nature. Mm-hmm. And I got a job as a reporter. I had some experience with some journalism in Tulsa because I did some freelance work for the Tulsa Daily World, did feature articles for them, and also a column for the... Oklahoma Eagle, which was an African-American weekly newspaper mm. uh, based in Oklahoma City. And uh, I, had, I was fairly successful there as a reporter, and I had delusions of grandeur because I thought I was ready for the CBS News Network. You know? And another thing that really drove me to leave Minnesota was a story that I had unearthed that the head of the Teamsters in the Twin Cities area, was in cahoots with a former FBI agent who owned an insurance company, and they were up to some fraudulent practices, and I found people following me. Mm. You know, I Mm. knew I was a target, and I had a child and, and a wife, of course, and I decided that was one of the motivating motives of why I, I led, I left the Twin Cities. Also, the idea that I thought that I could probably make it on CBS News. Well, I mm. never made it with CBS News. Mm. And I came home and... Um, came home being? We went to Mount Vernon right mm-hmm. away. I was staying with my parents. I got a job with a, a newspaper in Westchester County. And then I got a job in Philadelphia through a friend of mine, Bill Sears. Okay. Who had worked in Philadelphia at one time as a 
Philadelphia Eagles football announcer and also developed a Pulitzer Prize winning children's show in the park. This is Bill Sears. Bill Sears. And he was very well known in Philadelphia. And he said, I'll try and get you a job. And he knew the news director, the NBC, owned an operated station in Philadelphia, WRCV. And uh, I interviewed with the, the news director. And several, a couple of weeks later, he calls me up and offers me the job. Mm-hmm. So we moved to Philadelphia and spent three years there. All this while, I was very involved with the Baha'i faith. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I got an offer to work in New York City as a news producer for the 11th Hour News on Channel 5 in New York City. We're going to take a break and then come back and talk more with Mr. Rutstein about his experience at NBC News and how he ended up in Amherst. You're listening to WXOJLP Northampton. 103.3 103.3 FM, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Let all associate therefore In this great human garden Even as flowers grow and blend together side by side Come 
Listening to WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. We will now return to an interview with Mr. Nathan Rutstein, a member of the Baha'i Faith in Amherst, Massachusetts. Before the break, he was talking about how he and his family returned to New York City after doing a stint in Philadelphia. And I thought it was too good of an opportunity to turn down. So I went there, spent a year there, and then was recruited by ABC News to be their foreign assignment editor. And I was there when uh, Peter Jennings started, you know. Okay. What year was that about? Uh, 1962, I think, or 61, mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. Then from there, I went to NBC News. This is when Huntley Brinkley was number one, and uh, it was a wonderful experience because I had never met professionals who had so much integrity. Mm. Jed Huntley and David Brinkley. Not only them, but everyone, uh, most of the other people that I worked with, you know, the new staff, and, and, um, and I really enjoyed that experience at NBC. And then something very strange happened. Uh, I was perfectly content with my job and was being seriously considered to go to London to head the European Bureau. And but before you go there, Nat, uh, what was your responsibility uh, as producer of the NBC News at 11 o'clock? Was I that what it was? No, I wasn't producer of the NBC News. International News Editor for NBC. Okay, and what was your responsibility Covering international there? stories. Okay. And so assigning the... people to go to different places. And also, we had an arrangement with about 45 different international networks, like in Czechoslovakia and Germany and Britain and China China, and Japan, all the different, even Moscow. And we would do stories for them as well and distribute them around the world, usually via satellite. We were the first to break in the use of the satellite and mm-hmm. distributing news. So you were the final say in what international news went on yeah. the network? So something strange happened. Uh, a man by the name of Dr. Dwight Allen, who was the, at the time the dean of the School of uh, Education at the University of Massachusetts, 
And he came with quite a reputation at the University of Massachusetts. He was an outstanding scholar at Stanford University and a real innovator in education. And he had read an article that I had written in a Baha'i journal called World Order, which was about TV journalism and the future of TV journalism. And there was a segment on there in education, a relatively short section. And he was impressed with that. And uh, he came to NBC to be interviewed by Barbara Walters, who at the time was working for the Today Show. And she had a syndicated show called Not For Women Only. And they were talking about innovations of education. And since he was a leading educator, he was one of the panel members. You know. So before he was interviewed, he looked me up in my office and asked me if I'd have coffee with him. After five minutes of conversation, he offers me the chairmanship of uh, the communications media department of the School of Education. Not only didn't I have a PhD, I didn't even have a master's degree. But he was very flamboyant, uh, innovative, daring. I said, let me think about it. I talked it over with my wife, and we had visited Amherst before, and we liked it. And bringing up kids in metropolitan New York is difficult, even though we lived in a suburb like Teaneck, New Jersey. It was difficult. There were a lot of pressures, and, and so I took the offer. So how long were you at uh, NBC? Seven years. So I came to Amherst, and uh, it was culture shock. How's that? Because the other faculty were aware that I didn't have a PhD and didn't even have a master's degree. And I, in many ways, I was breaking tradition. but. Dwight loved to do that, you know. I would read some of the memos my fellow faculty members would write, and I just couldn't understand the language, you know. It was acad academic goobledygook, you know. And I noticed, and they, uh, they used this, this language in order to impress other people. And they invented terms, you know. And they were very circular in their thinking. They didn't just know how to get to the point, you know. And as a journalist, especially on an international level, you got to the point very quickly, you know. And there's no uh, BSing. Dwight makes me a communications consultant to the White House Conference on Children. Oh! And this was a choice thing, kind of a position. And he was named the chairman of the White House Conference on, on, on Children. Who was? Dwight was. Oh, I see. So I took that. I went down to Washington. President Nixon was, uh, was at the helm at the time. Mm -hmm. you know? And it was a successful experience. But there was a lot of jealousy. And I was very naive, and I thought that I was going into a into a uh, atmosphere that would be made up of uh, gentlemen and ladies, and and, um, and I found that the politics in academia was far worse than the corporate level, mm. because they had this exterior of um, of being academic and uh, tweety and. Uh, <laughs> very righteous, 
but my my companions and colleagues at the NBC were really people of integrity. You know? mm-hmm. And a lot of these people would take some of my ideas and run with it. Because I was very free in sharing my ideas. And that's what Dwight liked about I, I could bring new ideas and be a fresh representative at the uh, school. Mm-hmm. Then I had connections at Sesame Street and I had the Children's Television Network come up to the School of Education, and I had some of their producers, actors, get involved in a doctoral program, and we developed a real good relationship with Sesame Street. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I spent three years at the University of Massachusetts, and then uh, I spent the summer on the Today Show, and while I was uh, my last year, I wrote a book uh, called Go Watch TV, in quotes, this is a term that parents usually use to get rid of their children. You know? mm-hmm. And this is a book that dealt with the effects of television on children. And it did quite well, and I liked writing books, and I decided this is what I'm going to start doing, mm. seriously. Mm-hmm. And so this was about what year? 73. Mm-hmm. The book came out in 74. Mm-hmm. Sheen Ward was the publisher. They were using it at Harvard as a, as a, at the School of Education there, mm-hmm. as recommended reading. You know. mm-hmm. I left the, the School of Education. It, it, um, politics was just too much. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just terrible. I ended up, uh, after a while I went down to New York to do the, today, the, the today Show, I was contacted by STCC. Springfield to, Community Technical College. Yes. They wanted to start a telecommunications department, and they offered me a very good uh, arrangement. Mm-hmm. They said I didn't have to belong to any committees. I told them I didn't want to do that. You know, I wanted to just concentrate on the students, and I had some ideas about how to reach students who didn't do very well in high school. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had quite a few Hispanic, African-American students. Mm-hmm. My whole approach was unorthodox. The administration of the school uh, supported what I was doing because of the results. Now, how, why was it unorthodox? We didn't use any textbooks. I had the students write their own textbooks. But they would do it in cooperation with other students because I broke up the students in clusters. We didn't stress competition, but cooperation. And this is based on my Baha'i background, you see. Most students, as I pointed out, were African-American or Hispanic, and they were first-generation college people who were going to community college not to further their education, just to pick up a skill, like become a welder or a hygienist, a dental hygienist, to do something in TV production, that sort of thing. But after the first year, 70% of the students decided to go on to their four-year school. We did some very strange, different things. Uh, I never had a syllabus. I had just goals and objectives. And every day was a different day, you know. Mm -hmm. So to be tied down by a... a, To be a slave to a syllabus would be unfair to the students. Mm -hmm. I taught the students how to write proposals to get funding to produce a one-minute TV public service spot on some social issue. 
uh, i.e. narcotics or wife abuse and that sort of thing. In learning how to do a, a proposal, they learned a lot about research because they had to write a rationale and they had to footnote what the source was. And our students were, this is before Google, our students were in the library all the time. And they had never been in the library in high school, you see. Because mm -hmm. they knew where they, they could get some information. Mm -hmm. And they worked as a cluster, you see. They worked together and helped each other out. Mm -hmm. After they, most of them got funds, they either went to foundations, local, regional, even national. They went to various organizations like the Massachusetts Medical Association, which gave one of our students $35,000 mm. to do a series of ads during the summer. Mm. They went to uh, various local institutions like local public health, whatever. Mm -hmm. Some of the better ones were aired on uh, local PBS. You know. And then uh, I was very concerned about the, the spirit of my students. And uh, there's, a, there's a saying in the Baha'i teachings where, um, where Baha'u'llah, who's the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, likens the human being to a mind rich in gems of inestimable value. Mm -hmm. And we have to discover those gems and polish them, you see. So that I felt that true education is the discovery, release, and develop of human potentialities. I felt that I should find out what the potentialities of all of my students are. And so the first thing I did in the beginning of the semester is take time to talk to privately with each student and not involved in a teacher versus student kind of interview, but as two friends and to find out what their interests were and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And we developed, all of us developed a very good relationship. And I got to know a lot about the different potentialities of the students. I'm con concerned about their spirit. One late fall day, it was gray, uh, drizzly like today. The students who ranged between ages of 18 and 60, male and female, were in a very gloomy, had a very gloomy uh, attitude. I could mm. see it on their faces. I felt that I had to cheer them up. So I remember the song that I created for my three-year-old daughter at the time. It was came from an old Davy Crockett theme song, and I gave it a British twist. And I stood up and I sang it before them. Divey, divey crotchet, Regis of the Woolly Frontier. Ea, ea, ea. <laughs> Needed to get the vibrato in there, I see. The older students loved it. The younger students were in shock. Well, I immediately went to the board and wrote out phonetically the lyrics and said, everyone rhymes. And everyone rose and we sang the song. That became our class song. It got everyone in the proper groove to, to learn. And every class we started, we started with this song. In fact, the classes down the hall waited to hear this song. They were inspired as well. This became an official part of the graduation ceremony. 
before the uh, our seniors would stand up and sing diving diving crotchet regis of the woolly frontier yeah 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 and everyone would cheer you know so it was doing things like that and I, there were many other things that we did that were very different and when I left in 1992, over 90% of the students were going on to four-year schools and beyond. Mm. And this, this summer, the class of 1985 called me up and said, we're having a reunion, please come. Mm. And one of the first things they did, they all stood up and sang the song. We had a very bright student who got a, a partial scholarship to Emerson, uh, Emerson College in Boston, a very fine communications college. And she was working nights uh, to earn some extra funds, and she suffered a fatal cerebral hemorrhage. Mm. And the, the, all of her classmates, most of her classmates, came to the funeral service in the church. And the, the, the minister was talking primarily about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the students were upset. So they went out in the back, stood up, and sang in, in unison. Diving, diving, crotchet, regis of the woolly frontier, yeah, yeah. And this was their send-off for their beloved classmate. Oh, my gosh. Wow. So I left in 1992. And why? Well, in the late 1980s, I became deeply involved in a um, project to eliminate racism. Mm. It was a group of Baha'is that started this thing called the Institutes for the Healing of Racism. Mm -hmm. And it was started down in Houston, Texas, and they asked me to come, and and, uh, and I helped to found it. You know. And the, the demand for my services was so great that uh, I decided to retire early at the age of 62, and devote most of my time to furthering uh, the cause of the Institute for Healing and Racism. Mm -hmm. We had our ups and downs, but today our Institute for Healing and Racism functions under an umbrella organization called the National Resource Center for the Healing of Racism, which is based in Albion, Michigan, and heavily funded by the Kellogg Foundation. They just gave us $700,000. And they had made me a Kellogg Fellow on racism. And so I started writing a lot of books on racism. Uh, the first one was To Be One, A Battle Against Racism, which was essentially an autobiographical account of how I discovered my own feelings of superiority toward people of other skin color. And what what a battle I went through. Mm -hmm. And then I, I wrote a book called Healing Racism in America, Description for the Disease. This is book has been reprinted 14 times. Mm. This came out in 1993, and it's still in print and being used you know, in different places. And, book, and then I wrote a book uh, called uh, Racism, Unraveling the Fear, which is a pretty hard-hitting book. Mm. Why do you say that? Well, because I tell the true story of how racism became part of 
powerful part of the culture of America. Mm -hmm. Some people who are um, apologists for uh, our government's uh, dealing with American Indians and African Americans and Hispanics felt that it wasn't right and it was disparaging people like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson and Madison and, and, and some other founding fathers, you know. But I was concerned with the truth. And it's not that they were bad people, it's just that when it came to race, they had a white supremacist attitude. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, they even t wrote about it and talked about it. You know. Even Abraham Lincoln for a while, you see, mm -hmm. when he was young and even as a congressman and in the early stages of his presidency, had white supremacist uh, sent, uh, sentiment. Mm -hmm. It was Frederick Douglass that freed him of this. You know. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, and Lincoln called Frederick Douglass his 16th unofficial, the 16th unofficial president. Frederick Douglass was a great man. He was a slave, you know. Mm -hmm. He learned how to read and write with the help of some white folks. He was a true abolitionist. There were a lot of phony abolitionists who were against the institution of slavery, but who were white supremacists at heart. You know, I mean, even the Quakers were involved in, in racism, even though they were actively involved in the Underground Railroad. Mm -hmm. In their church, church meeting places, they would set aside a special place for the blacks. They mm -hmm. wouldn't allow the blacks and whites to, to mingle. Mm -hmm. you see. Yeah. Uh, Just goes to show you how powerful the culture is in, in ingraining racism. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you then were going full-time here with the Institute for the Healing yeah, of racism, racism, and you were writing speaking. books and about racism. And speaking all over the country and mm -hmm. doing workshops and... Mm -hmm. And so then, uh, and you're still, that's pretty much what is taking up most of your time now? or Well, I've cut back quite mm -hmm. a bit. I still write quite a bit, yeah. but I'm writing books on different subjects. Mm -hmm. you know? I just have a book coming out in the spring of 2006 called Keepers of the, F Keepers of the uh, Flame of Hope. Mm -hmm. And what it deals with, it describes what a human being is. So this is a very philosophical book? Yes, it's philosophical. It also talks about the purpose of life and mm -hmm. how to discover one's true self, mm -hmm. how Baha'u'llah comes and explains what a human being is mm -hmm. and the, what the purpose of life is. And mm -hmm. We explore the realities underlying the principle of the oneness of humankind. Mm -hmm. We discuss what religion is, because what religion, as is practiced today, isn't the way it was meant to be practiced. Mm -hmm. Because the world would be a very different place. And you find even the word religion comes from the Latin religio, which means to bond together. Mm. And we find that in, in Christianity there are 22,000 sects vying with one another, some killing one another, doing the very opposite of what religion is supposed to do, is be the source of unity, mm. bring the human family together. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's one of the purposes of Baha'u'llah's coming. You know. mm -hmm. So this book will be coming out, and it also deals with the day in which we live. It gives mm. people some perspective as to where humanity is headed and how we're going to get there and what we as individuals have to do to get there, mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. make it possible. And, uh, of course, the Baha'is are very hopeful and optimistic, and we see the future 
that the world is, mo is moving toward the internationalization of the planet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when you trace the social evolution of humanity, you see that we started out as families, and families feuded with one another, even killed each other, you know, mm -hmm. vowed they would never come together. But they overcame a new set of values came along, and we got tired of killing each other, mm -hmm. and the families said that they would never come together, formed clans. Clans did what uh, families did before them, they emerged into tribes, mm. into city-states, into nation-states. Now the nation-state is obsolete. Mm. And there should be one federal government mm. where the United States of America is a state in the United States of the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so your latest book, what is the title of your latest book? It's coming out in, in the spr next spring. Next spring, uh, okay. Spring 2006. Yeah, yeah. it's called uh, Keepers of the Flame of Hope. And can they find that uh, in Amazon.com or any bookstore? When book it comes store? out, yes. It yeah, it's yeah. General, general Public. When it comes out. And what is the latest book that is out now uh, that you... It's uh, Seeking Faith. Mm -hmm. Is religion what you really think it is? And it could be purchased at uh, not only Amazon, but, but uh, Barnes & Noble or mm -hmm. Borders. Okay. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Nathan Rutstein, our dear Baha'i brother who passed away May 22, 2006. He was an author, educator, videographer, and the former international news editor for NBC during the Huntley-Brinkley era. If you want information on the Baha'i faith specifically, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. Or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
spirit rain down on me I want to feel your presence around me Shower upon me thy confirmations Did the spirit of faith bring regeneration Holy Spirit rain down on me I want to feel your presence around me Shower upon me thy confirmations To the spirit of faith bring regeneration When I'm down, the spirit lifts me up When I'm low, you fill my empty cup You bring new life and you taught my soul to sing Because you're not changed a drop of water
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station.